You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, we began a new preaching series last week. Uh, for the next five or six months, we're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is really a letter. And if you're familiar with that letter, then you're like, oh, okay. It's going to be challenging. It is. It's going to be really challenging. It's also going to be pretty fun, I think. As Lucy likes to say, we're going to stir the pot a little bit. <clears throat> One of the challenging things about any letter, but this letter in particular, is that their world that they lived in and their culture was just so different from ours. And so it takes some work to figure out what Paul's saying or was saying to them in their context, and then how do we translate that to our lives today? That said, there are some similarities between Corinth and a city like Austin. Corinth was a capital city. It was a hub of education and commerce and culture. Corinth was a cool place to be, much like Austin. Corinth had a lot of religion and spirituality, but not a lot of Christians. Most of the people living in that city, and the same is true of ours, aren't Christians. Um, in fact, for them, the message about Jesus, the church of Christ, all of that was fairly new to the city of Corinth. And so as you can imagine, what happened is uh, these new Christians who have been so steeped in their culture, more than they have been steeped in church, they take all of these values and all of these practices from their culture, things that feel really normal to them, and they just bring them into the church. And that led to all kinds of problems, which we're gonna get to in this letter. In 1 Corinthians, there's doctrinal confusion, sexual immorality, church members suing other church members. There's an abuse of the communion meal. Uh, there is uh, pagan worship practices. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. It was quite a mess. And so the thing that stands out to me as we begin this letter is that as the Apostle Paul sits down to pen this thing, and he's got all these issues in mind, he knows about all this stuff, he starts by addressing the issue of Christian unity. He starts by going after disunity in the church and appealing to them to live in unity. I think Paul knows that if they don't have unity in the way that he's gonna describe it here, they'll never be able to resolve all the other issues. We're going to see that unity is in fact the foundation and basis on which we begin to work out our lives together and resolve all the other issues. I think unity within the church is probably more important than we typically think. It's deeper than we typically think. And it's harder to maintain than most of us realize. And so before we get to all the other stuff, before Paul gets to all the other stuff, he starts here. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it. We're gonna walk through it pretty much verse by verse. I'd like you to see what's going on in the text. We're gonna see three things as we go through it together. First, the call to unity. Then the cause of disunity. And then the power for unity. It begins with a call to unity. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So the tone of the letter and of this section is not Paul wielding apostolic authority and commanding them to be unified. Uh, The tone is one of appeal or entreaty. He's calling them to live into a reality that's already theirs. Look what he says. He says, brothers, this is a, a family issue. You are already brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants them to live into that reality. This is the way that the Bible talks about unity. It's not something that we create. It's something that we cultivate and maintain. In Ephesians 4, for instance, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So God the Father calls us to himself. We come to him through faith in Christ the Son. And the Spirit of God binds us together in him. That's what we've been called into. So now Paul is saying, live like that. This is why he appeals to them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that phrase there in verse 10. Someone's name represents their character or their reputation. And so he's just saying that when the church lives in unity, practically, functionally, we bear witness to the wisdom and the beauty and the power of Christ. Unity in the church is a big deal. It reflects the very nature of God and bears witness to the power of the gospel. So now, what does it look like then practically to do this, to to live in light of this unity that we have in Christ? Well, Paul gives us three phrases here. All of you agree? Not let there be any divisions among you and be united in the same mind and same judgment. To agree, that word just means to say the same thing, to be on the same page. Uh, My wife, Debbie, and I have been married 26 years and you would think that would mean we've got this communication thing figured out. Uh, But the reality is, is we are very different people, very different personalities. We don't look at anything the same way. And so on the regular in our house, this is what happens. We'll be having a conversation and we'll be well into it. I mean, five, 10 minutes into a conversation and eventually one of us will get a little frustrated or confused and ask the other one, hey, hang on, what are you talking about? And this happened three weeks ago, I think. Sure enough, we are not even talking about the same things. Not like different aspects of the same thing, not the same subject. It's crazy. Paul is saying, hey, get on the same page be talking about the same thing, namely the truth of the gospel, and be saying the same things about that truth. To agree on that. Christians can disagree on a variety of things, but unity at the very least means we agree on the core truths of the gospel. We say the same things about that. When we we disagree, in the areas that we disagree, Paul's also just saying, don't let those differences then cause divisions among you. That word division is just, it was used often to describe like a tear in a garment. So you know when you have some piece of clothing or fabric that gets a little frayed, and if you don't pay attention to that, it starts to grow, doesn't it? And eventually tears the whole garment in two. And so Paul's saying, wherever your relationships are frayed, 
Wherever there's little tears, mend those suckers. Sew them up before they become big tears. This last phrase, he says, united, be united in the same mind and same judgment. So the idea here, I think, is very similar to what Paul describes in Romans 12, where he says we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the effect of this renewed mind is that we discern the will of God and we're able to test and prove what is good and true and right. And so if that's happening, if our minds are being renewed according to the truth of God, then over time we will increasingly think the same way about more and more things. And look, I know in our culture, that's like a bad word. That sounds like groupthink. The groupthink is bad. You know what groupthink? Groupthink is just like when people defer to a perceived consensus within the group. And it's not a good thing, but that's not what Paul's talking about here at all. Paul's talking about each one of us deferring to the lordship of Jesus and being changed by him according to the wisdom and truth of God's word. So here's a little summary. Unity doesn't mean that everybody agrees about everything. It doesn't mean that everybody agrees about everything. It means that we at least agree about the core truths of the gospel. Now, unity also does not mean that everyone's right about everything. We have this surface understanding of unity in our culture that if we import it into the church, what it will look like is that we're supposed to give blanket affirmation to whatever anyone thinks. That's not Christian unity. Christian unity is a collective affirmation of what God thinks. And in humility, we pursue him together. And as we go on that journey, wherever his word confronts or conflicts with what we think, we don't affirm it, we repent of it. Here's how I see this play out practically in, in my experience in church. Uh, when I encounter someone who, who doesn't agree with what I'm saying, I tell them you're wrong. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just making sure you're awake. I think we do a pretty good job in this church of keeping the gospel at the center of things. And if you do a good job of that, one of the things that'll mean is that you have a lot of diversity on a whole bunch of other things. And that's okay. And so our church is, I think, a pretty diverse church when it comes to spiritual backgrounds, politics, preferences. This is a pretty lively bunch. I like it. It keeps my job interesting. Uh, and so here's what I do. When someone disagrees with something that I think, and when we have that conversation, I say, hey, let's not argue about it. We're on the same team. Let's just take our thoughts and questions to Jesus together and seek him. And so that looks like reading the scriptures together, praying together, reading books, maybe on different sides of the issue. I don't read books, articles perhaps, on different sides of the issue. Maybe bringing other people into the conversation. Whatever it takes, we're, we're working through it together so that we can come to a place of agreement. And if we can't come to a place of agreement, at least I hope we could come to a place of mutual understanding that prevents division. It doesn't always work out that way. It hasn't always worked out that way, but I think that's what it means to pursue unity together on things we disagree about. There are exhortations toward unity throughout the New Testament. 
Um, they're like reminders because it's such a big deal. What's happening in 1 Corinthians is not so much a reminder as it is a rebuke. There are real things, real issues of disunity that Paul wants to address, and that's where he turns his attention in verse 11. So there's a call to unity, and now we're gonna look at the cause of disunity. Verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people. Let's just, let me a little comment here. We don't really know who Chloe's people are. It's possible they were just doing business in Corinth and went to church there while they were there. They know Paul, so they went back to Ephesus. They were like, hey, we saw some things that weren't right. Now that's a really hard place to be, I think, because we a lot of times see things that don't look quite right, but we wrestle with these questions of like, well, is that any of my business? Like, is it gossip to go tell Paul or go tell the pastor? Is it even a big enough deal to bring up with somebody? Can they just work it out on their own? I mean, these are hard questions. They're in a hard spot, but they tell. They tell on them. The easiest option is to not get involved, you know, just avoid the awkwardness. It's also the absolute worst option because it neglects the health and unity of the church. Chloe's people are a good example for us to say that, hey, disunity and unity in the church, that is such a big deal that it's really everybody's business. All right, what's, what's the actual problem here in Corinth? Verse 11, he goes on. Chloe's people tell me that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There's, there's contention and strife in the family of God. That's not good. He gets more specific. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, sometimes what you read in the news is church division and, and fraction, factions because of like theological issues. That happens, but that's not what's happening here. In Corinth, people are uh, aligning themselves with various teachers and leaders, not based on their theology, but based on their style, their charisma, their methods, maybe they, how they look, how it makes them feel, all kinds of preference type stuff. And then they're arguing with each other about which one's better. So you had people saying, I'm a Paul guy. My guess is these are people who were probably around in the early days when Paul planted the church in Corinth. They became Christians under Paul's preaching. Um, they probably had some kind of personal relationship with Paul. Paul baptized some of them. And so all of this made them feel kind of like a personal allegiance to Paul. And so as other people came into Corinth and began teaching, and as members of the church started to prefer these teachers and promote these teachers, it kind of felt personal to the Paul people. Maybe even felt like a threat to the DNA of the church. So they're gonna defend their guy. Another group is saying, I'm an Apollos guy. What we learn about Apollos in Acts is the brother can preach. He is a pretty dynamic preacher. He was eloquent. He had charisma. He, he probably really appealed to anyone coming from a Greek background where rhetoric and wisdom was, was highly valued. Apollos could lay it down. And people really liked him. So I can imagine Apollos people saying like, you know, Paul's great. We couldn't have done it without him, but he's kind of boring. I mean, did you hear that story about that one time he preached so long a dude fell out the window and died? <laughs> Boring. Apollos is exciting. It's inspiring. And verse is resonating with some of you right now. 
Some of the people in this church are saying, I'm a Peter guy. We have less context for Peter's connection to this church, but it's not hard to imagine that you had some Jewish Christians in this church, and when they heard Peter teach, they just felt more connected to their background and their culture. They like Peter. The one that's the most confusing at first is you had a group saying, I follow Jesus. You're like, oh, that's good, right? I mean, isn't that what you would want people to say? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So what may be happening here is that people are boasting, not in Christ, but in the fact that they follow Christ. And this is kind of, this is a weird nuance, but they're kind of boasting in the fact that they were smart enough and wise enough and holy enough not to fall under the trap of all this factionism and to follow Jesus. They're doing the right thing, but you can see that same spirit of pride rooting up in them. One of the ways I see this play out in our culture is you've got people that are just kind of like, hey, I, all I need is Jesus. I don't need your preachers. I don't need your podcasts. I don't need your books. That's all man-made stuff. It's just me and Jesus. And those people, in my experience, also usually throw in that they don't need the church either. And you cannot divorce Jesus from his church. It's ridiculous. And so that kind of individualistic spirit when it comes into the church causes division just as much as factions around leaders does. All right, let's dig a little deeper here. You've got these factions around these leaders. What's underneath these quarrels and arguments? A big part of their culture was something called patronage. Uh, A patron was just someone who has had a lot of wealth or a lot of influence or power, and they would trade their wealth and power for the services of others, for clients. A client was just someone who would contract with a patron. He would serve them in some way, and in exchange, they got the benefits of the the patron's influence or power or wealth. If a client was just looking to improve their situation in life, whether it was financial or social or political, this is how you did it. One commentator says, It's essentially a way to validate yourself by means of someone else's success and status. The more wealthy, more powerful the patron was, the more elevated the client. All right, that's foreign to us. We do not have formal patron-client relationships, but we definitely do this kind of thing. We attach ourselves to celebrities, teams, clubs, companies, political parties, all kinds of stuff that gives us an elevated sense of worth. And we do it in the church. We align ourselves with certain leaders or teachers, certain causes, certain roles within the church, parenting philosophies, educational philosophies. I mean, we get evangelistic about these kinds of things as if this is the most important thing that people need. But the most important thing that people need, like what I need right now, as much as I ever have, is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate patron. He doesn't use his riches and power to leverage our servitude. Just the opposite. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. When we follow Jesus, we don't just become his servants. We become his friends, his brothers and sisters. We are children of God, co-heirs with Christ. And he grants to us all the riches of his grace and the full benefits of his power. When you have Christ, you have all of him. And he gives himself for you so that you can have him, not the other way around. Paul is saying, when you try to locate your identity somewhere outside of Jesus, not only will that fail you, it has great potential to cause divisions in the church. But when we define ourselves in relationship to Jesus, then the things that define us become less important by comparison. And so anywhere there's division, strife, that's one question we ought to ask. Hey, are any of us here in this situation trying to put our identity, our righteous, our value and worth in life in being right about this? Or are we rooted in Christ? If you go on our website, it says, we are a gospel-centered church. That's the cool thing to say in the church world these days. But what does it mean? One of the ways we answer that is this little diagram that I'm gonna show you. Uh, if you have that, can you throw that up? We don't really have a name for this. We've just always called it the circles, and you can see why. The main idea behind this diagram is just to depict three aspects of the gospel. So we're talking about something being gospel-centered. We're saying the gospel has content, right? We're talking about the, the truth of the message about Jesus, this truth of scripture. Uh, the gospel forms a new community in Christ. We're adopted into God's family. We're the people of God. And the gospel is a call to action. God is establishing and expanding his kingdom on earth, and he does it as his people proclaim the good news about Jesus and love one another by the power of the Spirit. And so this diagram is just saying there are three aspects of the gospel. And what's helpful in a community is to recognize that we all have a bent toward one of these things. Right? We're all drawn toward one of them. You came to this church because of one of those things primarily. It doesn't mean you don't care about the other things, but you have a bent. All right, so some of you are content people. And like when you go to a small group, for instance, what you want is to talk about the Bible. All that stuff in the beginning where people are just catching up and sharing life, boring. Let's get to the Bible. If we can do original languages, that would be sweet. Does anybody have that? It frustrates you when the Bible conversation derails into people talking about their feelings. You can't stand it. Some of you are community people. When you go to a small group, you wanna talk about what's going on in your lives. You don't mind talking about the Bible, but it is so frustrating when you spend a whole evening together and you leave feeling like you didn't actually connect with anyone. When you go to a small group, you want vulnerability, you want confession, you want prayer, you want ways that you can serve and help each other. Some of you are cause people. 
when you go to small, well, you don't really want to go to small group at all. You want to be out there doing stuff. At small group, you're like, are we gonna, is this, this is it. Every week, we're going to sit around and talk while there's all these needs out there we could be meeting. We all have a bent. And it's not wrong to have a bent. Your bent probably is a sign or an indicator of some kind of gifting that God has given you. It means you care about that. And the church needs all of the gifts, all the circles. We talk about them separately, but the whole point of the diagram is to say that they're, they're so intertwined that they're one thing. So it's not wrong to have a bent. What's wrong is to think that your bent is the most important one and that everyone should see it the way you do. That stirs up a spirit of division every time. And so when we talk about being a gospel-centered church, we're talking about being the kind of place that gives expression to all three aspects of the gospel. The kind of place where we walk in humility with one another, recognizing that we need each other to experience the fullness of God's grace toward us in Christ. And so it's helpful for you to acknowledge, what's your bent? And then to ask the question, is my bent a source of frustration with others? Or is my bent helping me build others up in the faith? Christian unity begins with a common faith in Jesus. And then as God renews our minds, we move toward greater and greater understanding, common understanding about more and more things, more and more applications of the gospel in every area of life. And then where there's disunity, we have to confront it. We have to deal with it. And when I talk about dealing with disunity, I'm not just talking about the argument at hand. We're also talking about the identity and pride issues underneath the argument. It's messy. It's hard. That's the work. That leads us to the last point, which is the power to do that work. The power for unity. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of a Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, well, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And I, you know, you, you can't edit. There's no Microsoft Word. Brother's just writing. He's like, oh yeah, that's right. I did baptize some of you, but I already said I didn't. But here, we'll put in parentheses. I doubt he had parentheses. I lost my place, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So just so you don't get hung up on this, of course Christ sent him to baptize. It's part of the Great Commission. Paul baptized lots of people and talks about it in lots of places. What he's saying here is in comparison. This isn't the main thing that he was there to do. He was there to preach the gospel. Baptism is a function of that, of people believing the gospel. All right, let's look at the text here. He has three rhetorical questions. The first one is, is Christ divided? The second one is, was Paul crucified for you? And then, were you baptized in the name of, the, of Paul? These questions are kind of ridiculous. And that's kind of the point. Paul is saying, the way you're living out your faith is so out of line with the truth of the gospel that I don't even know what to say about it. 
If I were to try to come up with a theology that matched the way you're living, it would be something like this, that Christ has been divided, that Paul died for you, that you were baptized in the name of Paul. It's absurd, and these factions are absurd. That's what he's saying. Look at the first question. Is Christ divided? One way to take this is a rebuke against the idea that you could somehow pick and choose what you like and want about Christ or about his church, like a buffet, you know? It's like, I'll take some of those teachings. I like those people, not so much those. And yeah, I'm gonna pass on authority as well. Ooh, but give me like a couple, one or two ways to serve. I think that'll be good for me. It would be absurd to think of Jesus or his church in that way. Another way to take this is like an image of various parts of your body boasting in their position. Like your fingers and toes having an argument about whether it's more important to be an appendage of the foot or the hand. Your body just doesn't work that way. Your body is one whole thing and it works together. And so it is in the church. Christ is one. And we are members of his body working together under his direction and authority and leadership. To jockey for position in the body of Christ just doesn't make any sense. It's ludicrous. The second question, he says, was Paul crucified for you? To those who were saying, I follow Paul, Paul's reply is, why? <laughs> why would you declare allegiance to me? Did I die for you? No. Christ died for you. It's through him and only him that you have forgiveness of sins and access to the Father and eternal life and the power of the Spirit and all of those things. Who is Paul compared to Christ? And then the third question, were you baptized in the name of Paul? So again, some of those who were baptized by Paul, I think were kind of wearing that around as a badge of honor. Felt like they had like a special place in the community because of that. And so what Paul does is he turns their attention to what's really important in baptism. What's important in baptism is not who baptizes you. It's the name that is proclaimed over you in baptism. And so in their church and in our church, when you are baptized, you're baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're marked by his name. We are the people of God. Jesus did not send Paul and Paul did not come to town to make Paul followers. He came to town to preach the gospel so that people could turn to Jesus and follow him. In all these questions, Paul is drawing our attention to the source and the power for unity. And I think verse 17 kind of sums it up. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, like Apollos. You can hear that little jab. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, it... If the thing that draws you to God is like somebody's charisma, you've been drawn to the wrong thing. What should draw you to God is the power of the cross of Christ. He's shifting attention away from personalities. He's shifting attention away from all of the ways that we would try to validate ourselves amongst one another. And he's shifting our attention to the power 
of the gospel because the cross of Christ is the end of identity building. Christ is our righteousness. And so we can let go of trying to be right and demanding our way and defending ourselves all the time. Christ is our security and so we can let go of our fear and of trying to control outcomes. Jesus is our victory and so we can lay down all our selfish ambitions and our need to win. Jesus is our happiness. And so we don't have to rise and fall on the approval of others. The power of the gospel is the cross of Christ and it is the end of all of our attempts at self-validation. Because when we have Christ, we have all of him. He's our righteousness. This is our call. This is like our aim as a church. If you're new here and you're trying to figure out what we're about, this is part of the answer. This is what we gotta be about. We gotta be about bringing our lives together under the lordship and authority of Jesus and his word. We gotta be about mending every little tear before they become big ones. And we gotta get up every day and preach the gospel to ourselves. To remind ourselves daily who we are in Christ and of our desperate need for the power of the Spirit to help us walk in light of that reality. Let's pray for those things together. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.